instead of that aggression or anger, this humor I employ to dilute the tension and the disorient the other person. In one way, it's like very funny, and but another way, it is also very serious because it talks about the certain politics in our current time. I will say that the whole installation together is an instinctive collectivity, a strategic collaboration, and also an emotional interdependence to each other. Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasimi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, thinking historically in the present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and their SP15 project. Over the next half an hour, we're going to be finding out about the ideas behind their art and how their work speaks to our current time and place. Today, we have Mitu Sen joining us from Delhi. Hello, Mitu. Hi. I know it's been a, a busy period for you, so welcome to Biennial Bites. You were here at the opening of the Biennial and then back again for the March meeting where you also performed. So thank you for taking time to talk to us again. Thank you. It's great to have you with us and have a chance to discuss all these different aspects of your work. Before we begin, I just want to briefly introduce your work to our listeners. Mitu's practice spans a wide range of media. Drawings, sculpture, installations, videos, poetry, and performance, and often questions social norms and hierarchies in relation to gender and sexuality, language, and marginalized identities. Much of Mita's work focuses on the physical and political vulnerability of the human body, the use of non-language, such as noise and glitches, as well as various forms of self-representation. We might ask ourselves how the distortion of language can resist oppressive power structures, in what ways can depicting the body reveal and defy social strictures? These are often the questions that Mitu's practice poses to us. So let's hear more from the artist herself. Mitu, it seems like we've known each other forever and I've been following your work for a long time. So I'm so happy that you're exhibiting with us in Sharjah Biennial and we're able to be part of the program. Thank you, Hur. It was a great privilege to be there in Sharjah Biennale and... Thank you also for inviting me in March meeting where I could get an opportunity to do a performance. Me too. You grew up in West Bengal and went on to study at Shantiniketan, one of India's leading art schools established by the Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore. How did your time there shape your practice? Wow, this is really like one of my most favorite questions. And I think I get very emotional and romantic uh, responding to this question. It was more than 25 years ago when I studied in late 90s. My mother is a poet. She's a poet. And my both my parents, uh, you know, are like very much into literature and music. So my whole upbringing, in the, you know, uh, was surrounded by books and uh, gramophones and music, you know, like like this. My parents wanted me to be a doctor because I was very good in my study. But um, somehow when I was like around 17 years old, I realized that this is not the academic, you know, like um, life is not my forte. I, I have to find something else. And I had no idea about any existing school, like art school. Anyway, so the, you know, about Shantaniketan, about Kalava, that fine arts department, you know, like the whole Shantaniketan was set up in a radically um, different environment, you know, um, compared to the other art school and colleges. The, the whole history of Amdhat Niketan or Vishwavati was um, an alternative idea of education system, you know, compared to this, say, the British schools, you know, British art schools and colonial schools, you know. 
it it was more like an um, artistic and intellectual hermitage. We call it ashram. You know, we used, to, we used to get classes under the trees. So we had very few classrooms. It was not like a structured curriculum. It was like more organic and fluid and spontaneous. Another thing in, in uh, my art school was the art history, you know, the studying art history, not only Indian, like the rest of the art school in India, but we also for like seven years, we studied Indian and Western and Far Eastern, you know, art history and aesthetics which really helped my understanding of developing the East and West, both in an equal manner. Rather, I got very uh, much involved into uh, the Far Eastern philosophy and Far Eastern you know, um, history in my practice, especially uh, while I was doing my master's degree with Zen philosophy and Taoism, many things, you know, like, which was not really a very common practice or you know, um, art education, art history practice in, in Indian art schools. And um, the whole environment with its organic flow, you know, like knowledge of idea sharing, you know, like a lot of scholars and thinkers from all over the world was like a bonus. Kind of spontaneity, you know, that amateurishness and the curiosity was so much interest that rawness was welcomed. It was more like a different kind of spontaneous encouragement uh, towards your naiveness, towards your not knowing towards your curiosity about the world, the nature, you know, the rain, the, the, the sun, you know, like everything. It was like a premeditated rhythm of labor, you know, behind this kind of slowness, the quietness, almost like a kind of casualness. And I think that labor, you know, like that kind of labor, latter phase in my practice, in my journey, become a very strong part that I call my medium as play bar, playing with labor. So that kind of playfulness and labor actually a serious play, which motivated me to critique and question uh, very playfully and not with anger and aggression, but with humor and uh, empathy and uh, sophistication, you know, to explore. I would say that that, that school has actually gave me or shaped my practice with that kind of flavor and spontaneity. I'm continuing with that. It might seem like a little nine, but it is what I have learned from my university. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. A great deal of the work you've become known for is invested in looking at the rules of desire and discourse, especially the notion of taboo. Why is the idea of pushing back against social conventions so important to you? Well, my art practice is committed to the ideas of perpetual unsettlement and constant becoming. And I use my medium as an earning via methodologies of play, of vulnerability and intuition with humor. So that earning is codified structure and the hierarchies of the language. I mean, about taboos in the society, I would say that, you know, I understand what we perceive as taboos or the social conventions. They are like myths. So for me, the myths are how identities and codes and markers of what is normative and idealized and replicated take over our personal and professional and political lives. Myth is the layer upon layer of all that which is regulation, which goes unchecked. I want to unmeet those unchecked regulations, those social constructs. Unmeeting this monolithic structure is my earning, is my mission and or motto. 
you know, like this this whole process of earning that motivates me to start acting in opposition to all those social forces, which are like, you know, unchecked regulations. The absurd and the incomprehensible things that we normalize in the name of the society. And I think that is what, for me, you know, like pushing back against that social conventions, the myths, the taboos. And that interests me most to earning them and playfully, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> so uh, much of your art is based on your body as a kind of medium, whether it's through performance or the use of your own hair, teeth and blood. What does this act of inserting yourself into your works allow for? Honestly, I don't treat, I know it looks like my my work is uh, full of bodily material, <laughs> but I don't treat my body as a primary medium. I just use it as because it is logistically, I often use it because logistically it's the most accessible and available thing to me. I think I prefer to think of this presence of my body as that of a conductor and biological body that materializes our consciousness. We were talking earlier about when when you were here at the March meeting about using hair and teeth and your, how you started using your hair. I thought that was really interesting. So I think as a, you know, as a woman artist, that we have a path, we have a journey through the bodies. I mean, I am saying we because I, I find myself in that community of women artists or maybe a lot of male artists also that use body as a material. And that body is like they are active, but maybe repressed and unseen aspects of that, you know, body. And that socially accepted model of how we embody our bodies is my process. Like, you know, I, I bring that intimate, erotic, sensual, psychosexual, forbidden, censored, invisible, non-binary, homosexual, provocative, humorous, playful, subversive those body, you know, as a element in my practice. And so that this material of teeth or hair or blood is no like accessible, you know, it comes as fragments or as a metaphor or maybe sometimes beyond metaphor. Another thing I would like to maybe make a comment that, you know, there is a play around the myth of an artist body. I always find this quite fascinating. And this, I like to play with that self-fashioning mythical being, that identity as self-reflective, self-commenting, self-critic and self-censored. That brings a lot of freedom and flexibility in my practice when I question and critique that persona. And that persona is cultivated partly by me and partly by the art world. Again, I come back to that myth-making of self, you know, a persona of an artist become a myth. And that myth is like a, the myth and the mystique, actually, of an artist is intensively capitalist marketed imagination. You should remember my the one-minute performative video, How to Be a Successful Artist. There are 10 points where I explain how uh, this kind of identity is marketed as myth. You know, that myth is morphing and hybridizing, but it, it is yet gendered like an woman artist. You know, it's locational, like third world, global south, developing notion, nation, sometimes discursive, like feminist, post-colonial, post-feminist, within that market structure, in institutions, across the discourse. You know, by medium, generation, gender, sexuality, nationality, region, or affirmation of political ideologies. 
there is a play between this material body, the political body, the identical, you know, kind of the identity uh, of how I'm projected, but as well as there is an absent body. And that absent body, I like to experience and I would like to share experience with others. So this body with its physical and materialistic, you know, approach and the body which is unseen and absent, these two bodies constantly play in my practice, whether it's a drawing, sculpture, you know, poetry or performance. So this is the body deflecting the gaze of the spectator of my many mirrored selves and the materialities. So that deflecting the gaze is one of my mission and that embracing the poetics is that possibility in my practice, I believe. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on your process and practice with us, Mitu. After the break, we'll be talking about your project at SB15. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with Mitu Sen about her project for the 15th Sharjah Biennial. Let's describe your SB15 project a little bit for our listeners. In Sharjah, Mitu is presenting a work called I Am From There, I Am From Here. It's a mixed-media installation featuring a poem in a script that resembles Arabic calligraphic forms, but is in fact entirely fictional. Made using a combination of synthetic hair as well as Mitu's own, the text also includes emojis and seems to allude to the expectations, possibilities, and limits of communication. Me too. For this work, you use different kinds of hair. Can you take us through the method of collecting and then arranging the letters into this poetic form? What was the process like? You know, I developed those drawings of each word, like which resembles like an Arabic script, like an imaginary Arabic script. It came from one of my very favorite uh, you know, poem of I am from here, I am from there by Muhammad Darwin. And it has no connection. So when I read and I got the translation from some internet, like, you know, like how it looks like, because I don't know a single word or script of Arabic, right? So for me, they're all like drawings. And from that, like, you know, that script drawing, I started to develop mirroring Arabic script. Like, you know, it's like a mimicry of those Arabic script. It's just, it looks like Arabic, but it's not. So as an artist, I tried to develop each word, each letter, you know, and it was quite a rigorous process. I constantly made drawings of it. And then I tried to, you know, kind of see how it looked. So I remember where, when I was developing those um, drawings, each word, and I was taking print out and putting it on the wall of my studio. There was a carpentry happening in my studio that time. And the carpenter, whose son is actually knows Urdu and Arabic. So one day he came and he said like, uh, ma'am, uh, are you writing something on Arabic or Urdu? Because I cannot read. I, I know it is Arabic, but I cannot read them. And that made me so happy because this is exactly what I wanted. That how we kind of uh, read, we, we create that otherness by our assumption. And then assumption is not authentic. We have to accept that, admit that. And a lot of misunderstanding happens. A lot of, you know, like events happening around the world, you know, um, with that kind of assumption and uh, creating uh, a particular specific kind of 
identity and naming it and, you know, like creating phobia around it. So anyway, that, that, that whole alphabet and the script, uh, you know, doing the research to create this uh, the script as a visual form was my, you know, I, I did not study Arabic. I just wanted to explore the visual aesthetics and the beauty of that, you know, that, that fluidity of a script. So I reshaped, you know, them with that, you know, different kind of um, iconic st- structures. And of course, the hair was uh, a medium that I came back more than, a, you know, like 20 years unbelonging is one of the first mediums I began working in early, uh, you know, ta- like early 2000, 2001. It was always like a medium for me. And it was not a sudden choice that I have, you know, pursued for this, uh, for this uh, Biennale. But definitely the, the one incident, the recent incident, you know, of Masa Amini, you know, in Iran triggered me, you know, like to, you know, return back to this material, you know, to this medium this, that which talks about the female body, the genders, aesthetics and beauty and the mortality. Like that whole context of women cutting their hair to assert their freedom and their, you know, and their bodily autonomy, you know, that really kind of worked at this moment. Body and language both came together in this work, I think, and it pushes one to confront the limits of communication and corporality. Yeah, I remember when uh, I remember when I told you about the calligraphy museum. Yeah, and you said, oh, "I have this work. I want to do a text in Arabic, but not legible." And I think a lot of people on the team were a little bit confused by it. But I think the work and referencing. Uh, what was happening in Iran could really be felt in the project for sure. So it's it's definitely very powerful. But then you've also included these emojis in the poem, which are quite fun and unexpected in a way. Yeah. Because otherwise the work is quite serious and thought provoking. You often have a fairly playful approach in your work and you make fun of the established order. So what was the thought behind including these emojis within the work? You know, like we, when we are like, especially in contemporary time, you see that how powerful the, the digital language is. So I found that this visual, you know, icons, images that like a flattened expressive faces, they are so beautiful, you know, digital media, you know, as a language. And I always um, um, uh, kind of uh, use or incorporate my practice with uh, in different kind of technology-based digital mediums, whether it's a QR code, digital glitches, Alexa, and in that recent chat GPT, you know, with the performance and Zoom Bombard. So these kind of things always, um, you know, inserts in my practice and talks about, brings the, the contemporary language. You know, when people grasp to understand what it is when it, something is unreadable, when you don't understand something like a gibberish, when you cannot read something which is an imaginary script, and there this familiarity of emoji evoke some kind of a humor, but at the same time, some kind of a relief of understanding. So that subversion I do through these emojis. And along with that emojis and this imaginary script, what I always stand in one constant thing is creating a contract, that artist declaration. That is a very, very important part of my practice for the last many years. So I create a contract, a declaration where I explain what is done, what is said. So it's not just the visual, but it is something that I want to establish and want to say. But again, using some kind of a human in that text and the, you know, that in the, in the contract text. 
this instead of that aggression or anger, this humor I employ to dilute the tension and the disorient the other person. You know, like they they they, they became little. It is a little ambiguous, you know, because it's like in one way it's like very funny. It is something absurd, ambiguous, and but another way it is also very serious because it talks about the certain politics in our current time. I will say that the whole installation with this imaginary hair script, cut of bronze braids, the contract together is an instinctive collectivity, a strategic collaboration and also an emotional interdependence to each other. So that is how the whole work is constructed. You mentioned your that your mother was a poet and you yourself started out as a writer in Bangla. You've also published poetry too, haven't you? Can you tell us a little bit more about the poetry that you've published or written? I think my, my poetic journey is more than 40 years old now because I started writing when I was four years old. My mother is a poet. So I grew up, you know, believing poetry as mother tongue. I did not separate that time that Bengali or Hindi or Spanish or Urdu or Arabic or different languages. When I started writing as a, as a child, I always wanted to be a poet like my mother. And uh, I adore her and I adore her like, you know, everything. She still, she still writes. And then in my adolescent period, I think I took poetry as my you know, as an armor, because then then that was the time that you have to deal with a lot of secret things and you have to keep a diary. So poetry become a secret code for me. And I could write, I could express my emotions and feelings through those poetries. Then I came to Shantaniketan and in all the seven years, I think I was flooded with words and poetries, you know, more than I could do anything on in art and visual art. I was more into writing poetry. And then my destiny brought me to Delhi, where I experienced different languages than Bengali. I started facing on the consequence of not knowing or not being educated in an English medium school and confronting the anglophonic post-colonial setup that, um, that we experience every day. So the lingual hierarchy, where in India we have like more than 300 languages, but where English is still worshipped and you, are, you, you, you feel that kind of divisions, you know, like, you know, like uh, it, it makes, the language makes you clear that where you belong. I think that made me really numb for a while. First, I started losing my own Bengali um, language, like, you know, I think sentimentally or emotionally. So I stopped writing in Bengali and not, it was not a decision, but slowly I could see that how a void is becoming a part of my uh, language, you know, inside my body. So uh, my poetry started becoming minimal, like a haiku or sometimes like maybe one single word or letter. And uh, in one point, it became a blank page. So my last Bengali poetry book, when I published, the book was designed by me and I published a lot of blank pages only with the page number to define and to explain that kind of those times which doesn't have a body, existing body, or which I could not document in any kind of existential, existing um, uh, script, but which I believe formed an absent body, which is a poetry. After that, uh, 10 years of silence, 
took my uh, poetry as a big blank page. And then I think around 2011 and 12, I started using computer and I started writing in, uh, in the computer. I downloaded Bengali font by then, you know, there's a lot of Bengali fonts developed. And I finished another book. <laughs> but again, there is another story that I, I found my whole script got glitched and some due to some techno error, the whole manuscript became unreadable glitches. But I still had my courage to call my Bengali publisher in Kolkata and I told him that I have another book ready. And that publisher, without listening anything from my side, and he just said, I know me too, you are a poet. A poet never dies. You may be like went into silence, but you are back and I would love to publish that book. I sent him that draft of, you know, over email. And after a couple of hours that night, he said, me too, this is a corrupted file. You send me the proper, you know, um, file. It took me a couple of months more to explain and convince him that those are not corrupted. Those are just unreadable in today's known language script or, you know, something. <laughs> but these are my poetry and I have put all my labor and all my, you know, intention and it's just not readable. He said, but yes, but it is not readable and it we cannot read. And I said, like, just the trust and the belief. It has some kind of existence, but it just didn't didn't get a life in a very traditional way. But can we really hide that existence of that stillborn baby? So it's like that kind of form. And I don't know, it sounds very morbid, but I'm getting a little emotional. And anyway, so he said, okay, so you are an artist and you can create a create an artist book with those poetries. It will look beautiful and, you know, kind of texture and script and all these things. Actually, he published that book. Nobody could read, but that is the book uh, called I Am a Poet. And I made a long journey with that poem and I made people read. And that show was actually, that project happened in Tate Modern in 2013. And... Um, I started performing those non-language poems because if I can write or if an accidental techno error can create such poetry, why can I not read those unconscious textures? So basically it was more like a resistance, you know, against all these hierarchical institutional, you know, uh, constructs. My whole linguistic exploration via these absences, erasers, imaginary scripts, glitching, silences, those are like kind of the new form of non-languages that I try to explore more and more. This is something that you've called uh, lingual anarchy, is that correct? Yeah, I call it lingual anarchy. <laughs> this unlanguaging the basic, the constructed language structure in our life. Actually, it, it, it aims to expose and destabilize how language, often the colonial remnant of English, functions as a hierarchical institution. So that was the notion of, you know, doing that <laughs> anarchic <laughs> movement. You briefly mentioned the chat GPT performance that was uh, performed during the March meeting, which was titled The Postcolonial Constellation, Art, Culture, Politics after 1960. So how did the work reflect and respond to the concept of the March meeting? Can you describe a little bit about the chat GPT and your use of it in terms of this performance? 
So as I said, like, you know, I always like to intervene and, and, and incorporate certain kind of very current uh, digital, um, you know, like kind of intervention, you know, like or something that that maybe my um, interns or like some young artists or young people are familiar with, powerful and convincing. And uh, it is actually a software which is so manipulative and without any authentic uh, authenticity. And that is what interests me a lot in general. But when I asked ChatGPT if, if he or she, whatever, you know, it doesn't have a gender also, understands my language, and uh, very convincingly it says that, yes, it does. So I asked him or her to uh, write me a poetry in my non-language using unlanguaging method. And if you remember, I showed in one of the screen that poetry, that poem she, it wrote, and it was so interesting. It created kind of some sound noise, you know, that's kind of a sonic, but, you know, in, in, in scripts, in, in words. I was like uh, shocked and surprised and could not really uh, respond, you know. So anyway, so I started asking ChatGPT a lot of questions, which in a passive way, will touch the the ideal of your March meeting um, theme, like the, the, the whole post-colonial constellation. I asked about Christopher Columbus. And the way ChatGPT answered, maybe I have uh, manipulated a little bit when I was editing with some few, with new few words, it almost identified Christopher Columbus not as a hero, but a brutal conqueror who destroyed that native Americans and started a colonize, you know, like the colonizing. So those kind of small little, you know, like a little anecdotes came to help me creating that script, which was very funny and interesting and very, very contextual with the theme of your March meeting. And then to remember when I uh, expressed my desire to conquer this beautiful land with camel and cactuses, and when I asked ChatGPT, how can I colonize? And very politically correct, ChatGPT warned me that in today's time, colonizing is not a good word. And he rather gave me some new way of colonizing, which I made a word, new word called colonizing. So it's a culture, cultural colonization. I think that that story I tried to create in that kind of with the, with the satire and humor. Yeah, it was a really brilliant performance, I have to say. And uh, everybody was so amazed with not just the technicalities and, every, and how far you've gone to um, get all these aspects out into this performance, but how engaging it was and how you touched on so many things that otherwise people haven't focused on or haven't been aware of. So I think a lot of the topics that you discussed within this one performance and bringing it all together within one subject kind of encapsulates the whole conference really, but in a very engaging uh, way and things that maybe a lot of the other people uh, speaking at the conference haven't even thought about. So I want to thank you again for performing the chat GPT. So for the audience, so let's hear a clip from that. Oops. 
Meteor practice is often about subverting traditional ways of understanding the world and presenting us with a new vantage point. So my final question is in connection with the theme of SB15. What does thinking historically in the present mean to you as an artist? I think as I mentioned you earlier, you know, like that, you know, I gathered the elements of social life, whether taboos, conventions and structures or institutions as myths in my practice. And uh, without history, we are nowhere. History is the most important part, definitely with the imagination and the subversion in it. As an artist, I would say that, you know, I am fortunate that, you know, that, that imagination and instinct I can uh, incorporate with the history to critique it and question it in a more interesting and ethical way. But I'll play with it. Thank you for joining us on Biennial Bites, Me Too. And thank you for being part of Sharjah Biennial 15. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view Me Too's work online, click on the link in the show notes. To see them in person, please visit Calligraphy Square and the Calligraphy Museum. See you there. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel wherever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Arts.